wildfire season is starting earlier and lasting longer due to global warming across the world. What will we do to save the world on fire? How can we cure our addiction to fossil fuels, which is verging on pyromania? Simon Dalby is the author of Pyromania, Fire and Geopolitics in a Climate-Disrupted World, and a professor emeritus at Wilfrid Laurier University. His other books are Rethinking Environmental Security, Anthropocene Geopolitics, Globalization, Security, Sustainability, and Security and Environmental Change. He's co-editor of Achieving the Sustainable Development Goals and Reframing Climate Change, Constructing Ecological Geopolitics. Dr. Simon Dalby, welcome to the One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. Hello. Thank you. Your forthcoming book, Pyromania, Fire and Geopolitics in a Climate-Disrupted World, it argues that humanity's success in using fire has radically changed our circumstances. And how can we constrain this firepower to undo what we have created to halt climate change? Let me read you a brief passage from the introduction that elaborates on the point that you've just made. At the heart of contemporary climate change on Earth is the process of combustion. Fires make the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that is heated the planet, melting the Arctic, and especially worrisome, saw the ice sheets around Antarctica too, changing weather patterns and making wildfire worse. Our civilization is burning things, especially fossil fuels, at prodigious rates. Fire has given humans power over numerous things, and because we're the only species that use it, we have changed both ourselves and our worlds profoundly. We are now heading towards a future hothouse Earth with a climate that is very different from what humans have known so far. We are also living in times when a major extinction event is happening, caused by human activities too, destroying habitat for numerous plants and animals, processes that are aggravated by climate disruptions. Because all these things are happening on a global scale, they're happening so fast. Traditional notions of the environment as a backdrop to human affairs have been overtaken by recent events. The world has changed so much that scientists are suggesting that we now live in a new phase in the natural history of the planet and are actively debating when our new geological age, that is the Anthropocene, the one caused by humanity, started. Geologists are asking very hard questions, such as how the disruptions the rich and powerful amongst us humans are now causing will show up in the future sediments of the planet millions of years in the future. Did this new age all start when farmers started clearing forests and using fire to do so? Perhaps the moment is when the impact of European conquest on the Americas became clear as carbon dioxide levels dropped in the 17th century. Or perhaps the Industrial Revolution late in the 18th century and the beginning of the use of steam power. The great acceleration in the global economy after the Second World War and the first use of nuclear weapons along with traces of fly ash from electricity generation using coal. Regardless of which start date you think is most appropriate, what is clear is that over the last two decades, the rich and powerful among us, the car-driving, airplane-flying folks who rely on industrial systems still powered mostly by fossil fuels, have changed how the world's climate works and are continuing to do so. Until recently, we were mostly taking our use of fire for granted. Furnaces, electricity from coal and gas-powered generation stations, and the use of internal combustion engines, engines simply part of our lives, all depend on using fuel and carefully controlling how we use fire to make our lives pleasant. Now, climate science, as well as the increasing weather-related disasters, wildfires in particular, are suggesting very clearly we need to think differently and act differently too. If you focus on fire, the key process causing climate change, and ask about its origins, where this problem started, what to do about it, you end up asking key questions about us humans. It turns out that what is new on Earth is that one species, that's us, has gained partial control over one key physical force in the Earth system that of combustion. Thinking about the power that fire has unleashed leads to all sorts of other interesting things, to a retelling of parts of history and different ways of thinking about how we live and how we might do so differently in the future. 
Yes, that really sets it up. And I like this elemental view, but I hadn't seen it in the framing it as a pyromania. If we're people of the fire, if we could go back to that moment, when did it start? When did we, the series of mistakes that we've made so that we can undo them and share for us the organization of this book, which is aimed at a general audience as well as a more academic audience who might be more familiar with these things. As I understand, you identify the problem and just describe the organization of your book. Basically, is, is in four parts. The first part is to lay out the problem and to point out very simply that decisions that are being made as to whether we go on burning things, being pyromaniacs, or we recognize the consequences of doing that and begin to think and live differently is really the political question of our times. To get a handle on that, you really need to stop and think about the origins, the questions of when did this all start? And of course, the crucial question of when did it really accelerate when we started using fossil fuels? And so that is all tied into the history of the last few centuries and the rivalries and power struggles in wars, controlling territory and resources. The history of the Second World War in particular is one that's tied into fossil fuel supplies from armed forces and control of oil fields and all of that kind of stuff. More recently, of course, that process has continued. War in the Middle East in particular, we're all being reminded of that, at least Europeans have very pointedly by the war in Ukraine and the disruption of fossil fuel supplies. Given those interconnected crises, chapter three then says, look, we have to stop and think about how we understand our relationship to fire and fossil fuels because the climate crisis is accelerating. We seem to be stuck with our addiction to burning fossil fuels. And we really need to stop and think about how that is tied into politics, how we think about who we are. Having had that analysis, then chapter four says, what are we going to do? And basically calls on all citizens to tackle these questions because we are all effectively members of the fire department. We all have responsibilities both to put out fires, but also crucially to think about what new building codes for a sustainable planet are needed. Um, we need to imagine ourselves as not only putting out fires, but also designing as human systems that don't need fire to function. And then the final part of the book, the cheeky little conclusion says we should all join the fire department and be actively involved, uh, trying to make a more sustainable world that burns a lot less stuff than we've been burning for the last few decades. Because of course, the irony of it and the real manifestation of our pyromania is we know we shouldn't be doing this collectively. We need to get off our addiction to fossil fuels. And yet we proceed in bank and resource companies go on investing huge amounts of money in further exploration for oil and gas in particular, knowing that we can't burn all of it if we are going to have a safe planet tree existence for future generations. Indeed, we know what we're doing and keep on doing. It's like that textbook definition of insanity. I really like how you laid that out. And the end is that we have to join the fire department and also making us think about how it's intertwined with geopolitics around Europe. Over winter, we've been told, conserve your energy because we won't have those supplies. And so it's frustrating for those of us working to mitigate climate change to think about how we distract ourselves and involve ourselves in wars when the biggest war fighting for survival on the planet. Yeah, I think that the war in Ukraine in particular highlighted the contradictions in all of this because both when the Russian tanks in the early days ran out of fuel trying to get to Kiev, they illustrated the dependence on fuel. The disruptions to gas deliveries to the rest of Europe made the same point very clear, but it also added the fact that we are dependent on this fuel as a commodity and the price of which is fluctuating all over the place. In the early parts of 
the COVID pandemic, when demand for oil collapsed in North America, it was being practically given away. Then in some cases, the contracts were negative. People had to pay companies not to deliver the stuff because they couldn't use it. And trying to make a sensible economic business, even household plans in terms of what you should spend your money on over the next year or two became difficult. So we are not only physically dependent on it, but also on the pricing. And that goes up and down and causes crises where you've got a market system that fluctuates the prices of this stuff makes all sorts of planning, household, businesses, governments, we're insecure in the sense of making life difficult to plan precisely because we don't know how much money we're going to need for the fuel. So my argument all through the book is that one form of security is getting off this stuff, not being dependent on it because it's dangerous um, in terms of the climate, also in terms of the byproducts of burning, the pollution that it generates have all sorts of health consequences for people, particularly living in cities. For all these reasons, getting ourselves off our dependence on fossil fuels will make us live better in future if we're not dependent on them. these vulnerabilities can be reduced and if we can do that well we can all live better near the end of the book i remind everybody that back before ronald reagan became a politician he was a pitchman for general electrics in the united states selling all sorts of consumer gizmos and gadgets and his slogan was live better electrically that's exactly the slogan that the climate change movement now needs we can live better if we confront our addiction to fossil fuels and we can do an awful lot of things better without burning stuff if we organize our societies to do so. If we shift the focus and think about it as fuel, not the kind of energy we need, but if we think about electricity coming from new renewable sources, or think about building buildings that use an awful lot less energy because they're far more efficient, then we've got a much different focus. The energy we need doesn't have to come from the fuel. And if we can separate out our thinking and recognize that we have a fuel price crisis, not an energy price crisis, we will begin to think politically much more sensibly about what we need to build and invest in for the future. Sure. It's about reframing that and adjusting our whole philosophy. And it is very important. It's quite possible this renewable energy utopia that will free us up. We talk about a lot about AI or different things, but we can redesign our future and make that a creative one. You also outline in your book the differences between the global north who's benefited from this climate change built on combustion of fossil fuels and the global south. And how do we make the transition, which luckily it's in the south and can benefit from a lot of this renewable energy that's right on their doorstep. But we have to address our ethical responsibility to pass on what we have benefited to help with that transition so that they are not dependent on dirty fuels. Fossil fuels have made most of the global north rich. Now it's time to use a bit of that wealth to build a better world and in ways that also helps those most vulnerable. And the people that are most vulnerable to this are in many cases parts of what we call the global south. Think of Pakistan over the last few years with those massive floods and disruptions to all sorts of infrastructure. Think about the heat of events early in the year that are coming far sooner than normally one would expect. And we had one large tropical storm which lasted for something like five weeks and made three landfalls. Unprecedented stuff and it hit Mozambique and Malawi in the early part of 2023. This is stuff that is new and is making matters much more difficult. Think about Puerto Rico a few years ago hit by a massive storm, hurricane. And then the question is, how do you rebuild the electric grid after that disaster? If you rebuild it using solar panels and backup systems on a small scale, it's probably far less vulnerable to future disruptions. But it's those kinds of investment decisions, and they will need financial help. It's through various United Nations green funds, the new, much talked about, but not yet seriously financed 
loss and damage arrangement that has been talked about by folks in the Global South for a very long time may yet see soon some funds being transferred to build, whether it's things like dikes or hopefully planting mangroves on vulnerable coasts, those kinds of initiatives, all of which are needed urgently. But of course, the other story is if solar panels are going on houses in the global south, rather than diesel generators, well, they're beginning to get ahead of the situation precisely in heat dome situations where you have lots of heat. If there's at least some sunshine, you can generate electricity from at least during the days to run your air conditioners. And again, in many cases, we're going to need air conditioners for cooling stations. Individuals in the poorer parts of the global south aren't going to be able to afford air conditioners northern style, but at least putting air conditioners in cooling stations and such things will help keep these some people alive. Those are the kinds of initiatives that you need to seriously think about. But we do need to fess up in the north and say, look, it's our consumption that is causing your vulnerability. Here's some compensation money to pay for our sins because we are clearly responsible for some of the worst excesses of climate disruption that you're suffering. But the whole discussion about climate change for the last 30 years has basically been the Global South talking about climate justice and the Global North talking about climate security. And often the two discourses simply don't mesh. In much of the media commentary on the annual conference of the parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the COPs, in reading the Northern media, you don't get a lot of the global justice discussion from the South. When a Philippine delegate went on hunger strike a few cops back, the response in Northern media was simply mystification because they had not been listening, had not been paying attention to what numerous people in the global South had been saying about justice. And there's a recognition dawning, at least on climate activists in the North. That's absolutely crucially important. But the conventional thinking about climate is still we can do technical fixes in the north and that will be enough. No, geopolitics requires us to think about who's dominating what, where, in much more flexible ways. Um, and thinking about our responsibilities to those who are being made vulnerable by our actions is at the heart of notions of climate justice. And this is something that is a hard sell, particularly for the older generations in the global north who see any criticism as an attack on their lifestyles and their ways of doing things. So there's a generational politics in the north too. Hence my references in a few places in the book to the protest movements and Greta Thunberg in particular is sort of the poster child for a youth movement that is, is trying to think seriously about how to tackle the climate change so that when she is looking for her pension funds towards the end of the century, the economy will be providing such things in ways that are sustainable, she hopes. So we've got to link up the climate justice movement in the global south, pay attention to what they're saying and think seriously about the climate disruptions that are coming in the global north unless we change paths fairly quickly. And the book tries to link these things together to point out that we have to think globally about this, but we also have to think about where we are in that global system and act accordingly, given our location. Yes, and you're in Canada and your neighbors just to the south and in America, there's always issues about immigration and refugees and not a lot of acknowledgement that why are, I mean, a quality of life or people are going to be drawn to America, but also it's because they're climate refugees and their livelihoods are disrupted by this or their farmers or their traditional ways of making money does not make it feasible. Why do people pick up and leave the security of their home? Most people don't do that unless there's a compelling reason. And so we have to really consider that as well and not just see those issues as isolated symptoms. 
In much of the discussion about climate refugees, we also need to note that most people that move and leave their farms or whatever move locally rather than globally. The discussions about climate refugees, yes, people are going to be dislocated. There's obviously going to be places which the current trends go on are going to become quite literally uninhabitable because they're too hot and too dry or they're being flooded so frequently that they're just not sustainable. That said, it is also worth pointing out that this climate change process is playing out in a global economy, which is also changing where people live and how people live very rapidly. The migration from rural areas to urban systems, it has been massive over the last couple of generations. We became an urban species. More than half of us live in cities sometime in early in the 21st century. And various estimates put the dates of 2007 or whatever, but early this century, clearly more than half of us now live in cities. And the massive migration from the countryside into cities is part of the human story. Just think of China in particular, hundreds of millions of people have left the country and moved into the cities in the last months of decades. It's a migration that's unparalleled in human history. So worrying about migration and setting that up as a sort of a scare story is something we need to be careful about. Yes, in the American case, Clearly, there are some families, hundreds of thousands of them probably in Central America, where climate has disrupted their traditional farming, where the spread of large commercial farms and forestry and mining and stuff has also displaced people, some of whom are ending up on the border um, between Mexico and the United States. There's no doubt about that. But in the global scale, we need to understand that we're a much more mobile species than conventional understandings of that we all live in one country and we stay there. In fact, there's a very considerable amount of human migration, as probably both of us in our lives can attest to. What we need to do is recognize that people usually leave because they frequently have to, and we need to understand the reasons why they are moving, some of which are climate related for sure. But treating foreigners as scary doesn't help. If we are trying to treat people who desperately need our help as threats, then we're getting all our notions about security and humanity all mixed up. And of course, that's been part of the problem with geopolitics. The fear of the foreigner has been used to mobilize populations through history for all sorts of nefarious purposes and is frequently a violent process. For thinking about climate and security, we need to be very careful about not treating foreigners as threats, but treating them as human beings that need our assistance. And in many cases, our assistance might best be to ensure that their lives where they started from are much more sustainable, in which case they are not forced to move. And that might well be exactly what we need to focus on, which of course is quite a lot of what resilience thinking and ecological development discussions are about in terms of climate security, allowing people to stay home by making their lives sustainable and much less vulnerable to disruption is, of course, at the heart of so much of the new development thinking around these issues. And we need to be clear about this and focus on how to help people rather than seeing them as threats. Indeed, that adaptive intelligence. And you may be finding in Canada, as you pointed out, there's internal migration. We'll see a lot more of that within the U.S., probably within Canada. And you may be having climate migrants from the United States coming your way. There's all sorts of fun stories about that in terms of the great migration north from the United States. I think that's good for novels. I'm not so sure it's good for existing policy discussions. Although that said, Canada is, of course, on a per capita basis, one of the largest immigrant states on a proportional basis. We absorb more immigrants than just about anybody else on the planet. And that policy continues to be an active part of Canadian thinking. Although in the Canadian case, there's a huge irony because we actually have a housing shortage. 
in Canada. So where are all these newcomers going? And that's actually becoming a major issue in the cities because clearly we have got lots of situations where there's a shortage of housing in the big cities where most of the immigrants are going. And trying to resolve that is going to be one of the major policy questions in Canada over the next generation or so. So yes, migration is part of the story and we need to stop and think about how we build housing for people in cities that are growing rapidly, but we've got to make sure that they've got the solar panels and the batteries in those new houses and not depending on diesel generators and power from a grid that is using coal or gas to power them. Good houses that are very efficient, so they don't need much energy. That's of course going to be provided by electricity, not fossil fuels, please remember. It has to be how we stop and link all of this stuff together. And that of course is the challenge because we tend to think about housing in one policy silo, migration in another policy silo, energy in a third one, investment strategies in a fourth one. Um, it's linking all of these things together is part and parcel of what has to be done if we're going to live better electrically, to use that wonderful slogan from Ronald Reagan. That really is the policy challenge. It requires us to be far more creative. It also, of course, as far as education is concerned, means that we've got to think about how we we study and learn in ways that don't rely on the engineers that are over here, the ecologists are here, the geographers are there. When there's a political scientist over the other side of campus, we have got to stop and think much more carefully about how we integrate our education systems so that we think across these silos and about literally how to make a better world. And part of my argument has been that the tackling our relationship with fire, which is the key physical process at the heart of climate change, but also at the heart of all those vulnerabilities to price fluctuations and things for energy supplies. And that is one way of thinking about how we learn to live differently because it makes us understand ourselves as literally geophysical actors. And then we can extract ourselves, hopefully, from those little silos that we do our studying and thinking and learning in and begin to think about our role as ecological beings and the role of fossil fuels and making us wealthy, but simultaneously making us vulnerable. And I think that this should allow us to be much more creative in terms of how we design curriculum and how we organize our educational process. At least that's my hope. Indeed, it has the possibility for encouraging creativity and being a kind of design renaissance. It's a really big challenge that it takes this multidisciplinary thinking. And of course, you mentioned housing and cities. We're living in the century of the city. A decade of, goes without saying a tremendous transformation if we can accept the challenge. And as you point out, cities are the main drivers of creativity and innovation consuming something like 75% of the world's natural resources, 70% of global carbon dioxide emissions. So what have you come across in terms of this integrated thinking and how do you think the cities of the future are going to look like in those different sectors like energy, transport, resource waste management, food pollution, and working all together? Big question, that one. But it's crucial because how we design cities so we can live better together is at the heart of so much of this. Cities in the long run, if we are going to be sustainable, less personal car ownership, a lot more public transport, a lot more bicycles or scooters, which are um, particularly electric bikes are just marvelous in terms of allowing people to commute with minimizing pollution, get a bit of exercise and needs a lot less room to store the vehicle when you get to work or to the shopping center or whatever. Copenhagen and Amsterdam are getting quite a lot of attention because they are moving ahead more rapidly and... I was in Hamburg earlier in 2023, talking about some of these things. 
um, and was very struck by the innovations that are being used by delivery companies, as well as by families for with cargo bikes, all of which dramatically reduce the amount of energy used. They improve the fitness of the people that are using them. They dramatically reduce pollution. They allow everybody to breathe easier because there's much less pollution from internal combustion engines actually in cities. All of this suggests that we need to reimagine cities as public spaces that are not dependent on private automobiles. And the most livable cities are the ones that are dramatically reducing the individual use of cars. In North America, we have a problem with these massive suburban sprawls that we have built over the last two generations. The good life is supposedly the isolated house with the big garden and the two-car garage, whether that's sustainable or whether it's actually a desirable way to live where social creatures in this isolation and individual modes of consumption for lots of people simply doesn't work as a desirable way to live despite how much the advertising agency is trying to sell us on this lifestyle as what we should all aspire to. So there's a cultural change coming too in terms of how we imagine the good life and what it is that we need to build to live that good life and the massive sprawl that has been the American model. I think is increasingly criticized for all sorts of reasons, not just climate change and the ecological damage it does, but also for the sort of the mental health and the breakup of communities, which makes life more lonely and less fulfilling for so many of us. It's unfortunate the way so many American cities are designed, it makes the transitioning more difficult, but it is much easier to do within European cities that are designed on a human scale, not on an automobile scale. And just to think about one of the most beautiful cities in the world, which you know, has its own problem with rising sea levels, but what makes Venice special? It's no cars. <laughs> That's really yeah. beautiful. So I think it's so lovely when you can motivate people planetary health related to human health, related to a sense of well-being and this natural joy that your body feels in feeling more connected to your community environment. And it's about reconnecting and then it makes some of the sacrifices less difficult. In Canada, in terms of policy, and you spoke about the climate literacy and how we have to rethink our education models so that people are really prepared. So many of even the traditional white-collar workers that you'd think would be prepared for this. We don't have basic climate literacy, and I didn't growing up. In terms of public policy and education, what's happening up there in Canada? Slowly but surely, some of these innovations are coming. As far as I'm concerned, it's too slow. We need a much more holistic education system, which insists that people in one discipline um, become familiar with at least some of the thinking in very different disciplines. If we're going to live better electrically, we're going to build those cities in a more sustainable way. If we're going to think about well-being linked to planetary health, we need to get out of the silos that we traditionally thought about and work to think across the disciplines. In fact, we need a whole bunch of new disciplines. Do we need departments of Anthropocene studies? Maybe we do, but we need Anthropocene perspectives in all of the traditional disciplines get us where we need to go far more effectively. But yes, we need to be more creative. We need to think about education as dealing with knowledge and critical thinking, being able to challenge traditional paradigms and, and think differently about what kind of world we are making. Big challenge for all of us as educators to think about. Listening to Simon Dalby talk about his latest book, Pyromania, 
I think it's really interesting how he brings up things about the global south, the global north, as well as accessibility for all. As a college student who is currently going into her sophomore year, I do not have a car right now, and most of the places I will be getting around in my college will be taken by bus. Although it may take a longer time than a car does, I definitely think that places, especially like America, need to improve on their accessibility when it comes to where people can go. In America, it's almost a necessity to have a car to be able to get anywhere. Whereas in other countries, or as our interviewer Mia Funk says, in Europe, it's a lot more accessible to just walk around. As someone coming from a part of the global south and India and living here in America and going there for summers, I have definitely noticed the increase in heat and the excessive change in climate and how things like air conditioning has also become almost a necessity now because it is almost like we are unable to live in this heat and creating so much detrimental environmental impact that we are having right now ultimately comes back to hurt us in the end. And now back to the interview. Thinking and then also the implementation because so much of the technologies are there. They can be improved upon, they can be made more efficient, more circular in design, but a lot of it is actually just the willpower and the implementation. And I would love to see a vocational training in this as well and bringing people to the table, whether it's the global south or whether it's farmers, builders, or people who have a lot of that practical implementation knowledge, or if you say within the arts, putting those things into the world, I think is very useful. Is the conversation We've also had a lot of conversations, as you've mentioned, COP, and I hope that, you know, at one stage we won't have a need for COP so that we're just doing it. And that would be a great thrill to see that in practice. I'm just sorry that it's a question of time. So it's about prioritizing different change. And the big focus is always on climate. Of course, there's other issues that are put to the sidelines, like water shortage. We think, oh, water is an unlimited resource. But in fact, it is finite in terms of water that you can consume and can be used for agriculture. So we're having to prioritize which issue is more worthy. But we also need to think more carefully about how we use water. Yes, there are areas where water shortages are going to be a major issue. It's going to be fascinating to watch how California plays out in the next couple of years. Huge droughts in the American West, lots of rain and snow this winter, but not enough to recharge the aquifers and to fill the dams. But then we need to think about the other end of it in terms of where this water is used and how it's going to be used. I was in California a decade ago, and there's all sorts of squabbles about who has water rights and do cities have rights and are they going to preempt farms if that's the case, then where does all the vegetables in the United States actually get grown? The answer at least is in Arizona, but while Arizona is facing water supply shortages as well from the same larger drought system. So can we actually use water drip irrigation systems, for instance, that actually just put water where the crops need it, not all over the fields. So we can use water much more efficiently and think about regenerative agriculture, where we do polycultures, not a single crop grown, then you plow the field and you start over. Can we intermix crops between orchard type and also perhaps vegetables underneath, all using the same ecosystem in a way that also buffers it from climate extremes? Those are the kinds of agriculture we're going to need. We've got to start to think more carefully about agriculture in ways that doesn't replicate that old monocultural, clear the whole landscape and start over each season stuff. I think that's beginning to come. Polycultures are being talked about, regenerative agriculture is being talked about. And we've also now got all sorts of smart technologies 
that allow us to, to deal with pests more efficiently. So we need better diets, a lot less big animals to provide what we need because beef in particular is inefficient in terms of converting organic stuff into food. And we need to stop and think about that diet and how we handle that situation. All those innovations are beginning to come. Our task as educators and citizens is to stop and think much more carefully about how we move those things ahead quickly. Yes. And your family is originally from Ireland. You studied in Ireland and you speak of monocrops, the famine, which is a failure of farming and monocrops if a regenerative agricultural model had been followed. Yes. And the extreme poverty was also, of course, a crucial part of the famine because it was extremely poor people dependent on the potato that starved and the slightly more affluent ones that could manage to scrape together the money for a ticket got out. But it did dramatically change the population of the island of Ireland. And still, we have not yet, nearly two centuries later, reached the population level in Ireland that it was in 1840. So there's a huge question there about agricultural change. But of course, now, fast forward to nearly two centuries after the Great Famine of the 1840s, there's an argument about the cattle farmers in Ireland pushing back against a, a notion of agriculture and ecological change because they make a lot of money producing cows and selling both the dairy products and the beef into the European market. Ireland's agricultural system is going to have to change again because beef is ecologically inefficient, uses lots of land for things that might be much more effectively used to grow other things. That's going to require reform in the agricultural system one more time. But we do need to recognize that modernity is all about change. We have changed how we make things. We have changed how we grow things. And we will have to do it again to make a much more sustainable models. Because one of the things over the last couple of centuries has been the enormous speed with which human systems have changed. And that is another one of the key points in the book. We need to stop and think about not just expressing our preferences through purchases. We need to think of ourselves as the citizens acting together rather than as consumers acting individually. Indeed, it's not all the individual, it's collective. And as our population is growing on this planet and none of us seems to, to want to make concerted efforts to reduce the population, so we're dealing with fewer resources. I was speaking with Jay Famiglietti, who's the head up there in the University of Saskatchewan's the Global Water Security Institute, are talking about the resource management. He said that it, we may come to a time, we're talking about not having enough water for crops, where governments have to step in and say, you cannot grow those crops. They just take too much water. You can only grow these ones. Um, these are some of the difficult decisions, but we have to have enough food to go around. And I think that those times are clearly coming for many societies. Stopping and thinking about how you can much more efficient in food production is something that we're just going to have to do both because we have to reduce the dependence of agricultural systems on directly using fossil fuels and because we have to build agricultural systems that are less vulnerable to weather disruptions caused by the climate change by burning lots of fossil fuels over the last few generations. That's the world we live in now. Yeah, it's a changing a mindset, changing habits. Yes, I do think we need to focus on stop and think about how if you solve some of climate change's problems, you will actually live better and provide the right incentive for people to think different. But it's quite clear that worrying about climate change as a threat in many cases has been counterproductive because it has not been paralleled with a much clearer focus on how we can do things better while simultaneously responding to the threat. And I think that one of the things that has become very clear in the climate change discussion over the last while is that the traditional way of dealing with it just as a pollution problem, which is what the cops have been doing, they've been talking about reducing emissions, although they haven't actually done much to be effective, we need to complement it with a whole series of other things about how to redesign cities, eat more nutritional food, mental health, 
well-being when we're not all isolated by car culture. And I think that's been one of the, the failures of the cops in particular. The, the cops have been co-opted by the fossil fuel industry. And that too suggests that we need to think completely differently. If they are taking over those, the processes that are supposed to constrain them, we may need to act in ways that recognize that process isn't going to give us the answers that we need. And you spoke about the last COP, which was sponsored by Coca-Cola. You've been working at this for over 30 years. What initially drew you to this is something that whether it's dealing on the geopolitical level or activating change among individuals, what drew you to this? You need to go back to get my intellectual trajectory on this and how I got involved in this. My dissertation, my work in the 1980s, my PhD was all about the dangers of nuclear war and the modes of thought that perpetuated the extraordinary production of massive amounts of nuclear weapons. And I was thinking about how the Americans were portraying the Soviet Union as a threat. In the middle of all that, one of the reasons why nuclear weapons were deemed to be very dangerous is because became clear that they wouldn't just destroy cities and burn and radiate people directly, but they would also mess with the climate. There's vast fires and, and the dust raised by nuclear explosions into the upper atmosphere would probably cause what was called nuclear winter. And that can actually change the climate by our actions. We better avoid this nuclear war because it is going to be even more serious than most of us understood at the time. Fast forward to the end of the 80s and the end of the Cold War, the reduction of fears about nuclear weapons. But then there was a whole series of arguments spun off in part from the World Commission on Environment and Development, the Brundtland Report in 1987, which suggested that in fact, the next cause of potential violence was in fact going to be environmental insecurities and resource shortages were likely to cause conflict in all sorts of ways. And sustainable development became the solution to this. And I started to look at that and think about the relationship between environmental change and conflict, but also what security policies were needed if we were going to head this stuff off. And that gradually spun into a larger concern with the whole debate about environmental security. I did a bunch of writing on that in the early 90s. And that whole policy and academic debate about the relationship between scarcity and conflict has continued ever since. And once I got started on it, the invitations kept coming to, can you do us a paper on this? We've got a conference on that. And it's spun off into a 30-year career dealing with these things. So as you think about the future and the next generation, what are some important lessons for you and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? The most important question is to stop and think carefully about your place in the world and simultaneously to think about how people are telling you to think about these things, about your interconnectedness as an ecological being, um, where your food comes from and where your sewage goes to. Very practical questions of thinking about yourself in the larger context and think about the fact that we understand ourselves to be living on a vulnerable planet and we can go out and conquer. It's a much smaller world which we have to learn to share if we're all going to get along. I like to say that the task for the current generation of people thinking about geopolitics is to change the discourse from trying to dominate a divided world to how to share a crowded one. And I think that whole assumption about how it is that we live and how the geography of our planet is organized is at the heart of reimagining how we should live better. And I think that's the crucial point that students to stop and think about. And then they need to study. They also need to act as citizens grappling with people's fears about change and pointing out that living better is a possibility, but it's not going to happen unless people focus on doing so. Indeed, it's crucial. It may seem that this world is fractured, as sometimes it is, but we are so much more connected and we have to see ourselves in that light. So 
Thank you, Dr. Simon Dalby, for sharing your knowledge and reflections on our current pyromania for burning fossil fuels, your active hope, and imparting the message that we have the solutions we need to live sustainably. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Tavesha Yernani. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.